Hi, good morning. I'm a little nervous. So my name is Sally, and uh, first of all, I want to thank you for having us here today. I am the outreach director of the Hoving Home, and so I'm I'm pretty sure most of you know who we are, but what we are is a 6- to 12-month women's discipleship program right here located in Pasadena that helps women rebuild their lives that have been shattered from drugs, alcohol, human trafficking, domestic violence, homelessness, anything that could really shatter a woman's life. Um, We are a program that is designed to put Jesus Christ at the center of it all. And so for most of us, including myself, um, I tried everything, but I didn't try God. And when I allowed God to come into my life through um, learning about him through um, the program, everything changed for me. And I will tell you that we learn our identity in Christ. And so there isn't anything that the world can tell us um, moving forward. Um, that We're not defined by our past, but we have been forgiven and set free by the grace of God. And so each one of these ladies has an amazing story. Um, the cool part is... Um, is that none of them know they're going to be in a choir when they do the intake. Um, and so you'll be able to hear how beautiful they sound um, 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 once I'm done speaking here. But um, we are um, located in Pasadena. So if any of you um, have time, come and take a tour of our facility. We house 45 women. Um, but right now we um, do have about 15 beds available. So if you do know any women that may be struggling on the street, please feel free to give our information. Have them call and do an intake. We don't turn any women away with the inability to pay, and we don't take insurance. And so um, if you have any more questions, we have been around in, in Pasadena for over 30 years, and we've been around as a ministry um, for over 50 years. And in the fa- past 50 years, we have been able to... Um, plant the seed of 25,000 women who have walked through our doors. We just opened a Mommy and Me Center in New York um, last January, and since then we have had two graduates and two babies born into our program. And so God is doing amazing things. Um, we do have some crafts in the back that the ladies have handmade. There's some jewelry and some items that we sell as form of fundraising. We also do have a CD that is on iTunes. So if you like what you hear, you can have an opportunity to, um, there's five songs and five testimonies online that you can order. We do sell the, sell the CDs in the back and that um, all the money goes right back into um, keeping the doors open for the next lady who has yet to come. So once again, um, feel free to ask us any questions. We are all available to you after service, but I'm going to go ahead and announce the sounds of joy. Thank you. Hello, church family. My name is Diana Smith. Uh, I am 30 years old, and I'm the mother of five beautiful children. I was adopted into a very large um, white family, um, and I was raised down south. I have 10 brothers and four sisters, but it was a big Christian family, and um, I I knew about God. Um, But there was also a part of me that felt like I didn't fit. And so during this time, um, the people that I loved the most and who were supposed to be there and protect me ended up doing more damage um, than they knew. Um, When I was six years old, it started the molestation um, by a close family member. And this went on until I was about 12 when I realized that there was something seriously wrong. So during that time period, I was trying to figure out why this happened to me. And um, I felt rejected. I felt abandoned. And uh, it set me off on a path of just rebellion, just trying to not only just 
find where I fit in life, but find out what love really was because I wasn't receiving it in the proper way at home. So um, I tried to look for it in men. I tried to look for it in drugs and alcohol. I tried to look for it even in my children or, or the workplace, and I, I uh, struggled with all of it. Um, I felt helpless and hopeless, and this led me to, uh, in my early 20s, pick up an alcohol addiction. I didn't know what type of demon that was going to be for me. And it caused me to lose things that were important. It caused me to lose my children and um, my relationships with my family and my partners. It caused me to... Um, it caused me to lose hope in myself. And I drank every day for a year. And I, uh, I ended up in the hospital. At that point, I... Um, didn't even seriously want to admit I had a problem, and I had people bringing me alcohol in um, to the hospital. And I ended up actually overdosing. I flatlined. I was dead for just about three minutes. Um, When the doctors brought me back, that was the moment that I realized that I actually had a problem. It started me on the road that got me to the Hoving home. And in that process, um, getting here, when I came through the doors... When I came through those doors, I was so broken and so lost and so abandoned. But then God, he started restoring me in a way that I never knew was possible. He showed me a love and not the love that this world shows me, but an unfailing love, a fierce love. And his grace just poured over me. I've been in the home for eight and a half months and God has shown me in that time who he is in so many different facets through my learning in the Benton Academy, through my daily devotions, through my relationships that I'm developing with my sisters. God is showing me my identity in him and he's showing me freedom and who he is. And so my future plans are open. Honestly, every other plan that I've had in my life has failed up until this point. And so I'm letting go and I'm letting God. And uh, when I complete, we'll see what he has next. Uh, So the verse that I want to leave you with has been something that um, has resounded in me uh, throughout this last year. And that's Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your path. Thank you. Good morning. My name is Megan. I am 24 years old, and I'm originally from Long Island, New York. Um, <laughs> amen. <laughs> I, um, I grew up in a very violent household that was centered around drugs. Um, as a little girl, I witnessed my mom um, being beaten by my father. Um, but luckily, I was adopted by my loving grandmother who raised me in the church. Um, and as I grew up, I... I went to a private high school, I played sports, I learned instruments, and everything seemed well on the outside. Um, But inside I was suffering with a lot of hurt, abandonment, and rejection issues from my earlier years. Um, So when I was about 15 years old, I started to party with my friends, going out, sneaking out late, um, drinking, and what 
I thought was just, you know, trying to fit in turned into a um, pill and cocaine addiction by the age of 18. And um, through that addiction, I spiraled out of control. Um, I lost pretty much everything that I had. And I was, um, I was just really suffering. In my addiction, I also um, became really depressed and um, was in and out of mental hospitals from trying to kill myself several times unsuccessfully. And um, just to feel something, I would cut myself when I was high because I was so numb. Was so numb, and um, I also became interested in witchcraft, which um, took me to a really, really dark place. I um, began dabbling in that, and um, I suffered from night terrors, waking up at three o'clock in the morning, screaming, seeing things in my room, waking up with scratches all over my body, and I just didn't believe that this is where my life had had gotten to. There were many moments in my life where I knew I needed help, but one of them was um, after 15 years of not seeing my father, I reconnected with him to find myself in a motel room with him the first night um, introduced to crack. That led me to spiral even more out of control, and I... One night I just called out to God. I was like, I cannot do this any longer. I cannot live like this anymore. And I asked him if he was real to help me and to save me. And I called my grandmother and she pointed me in the direction of the Hoving Home in California. And I called and I immediately got accepted in. I packed my stuff and I was here in less than like three days. Um, And since I've been in the home I felt a peace and a love that I've never experienced before. God is revealing himself to me in so many ways, and he's so faithful to me, and I'm so undeserving of it. And um, I really feel blessed to be here. I'm developing a relationship with Christ. I know now that I am a child of God, I have been redeemed, and that if um, he is for me, that no one can be against me. So um, my future plans are to do the leadership program at the home and then see where the Lord leads me from there. And, um, you know, in God's timing, I would love to have a family and um, go back to college. And the verse that I leave you guys with is Psalms 46, 5. God is within her. She will not fall. Thank you. There is this poem about how to be a poet by Wendell Berry that I'm reminded of as I'm standing up here right now uh, to teach. It says something along the lines of uh, that the stillness would be a kind of teacher and that the words that come forth would not disturb the stillness from which the words were delivered. And I'm feeling a little bit of that right now, uh, that whatever next words I say doesn't disturb the stillness that you all have created for and with us uh, and you all as well in worship. I do have some words to share, Uh, and so if you have a Bible, you can grab it. I'm going to read our scripture today. I'm going to read our scripture today because when we were sitting around together in worship planning and we realized the scripture for today would be from the Song of Songs or Song of Solomon, you might know it as, I figured it's probably not the kind of thing we're going to ask somebody to to read without a good bit of warning. Um, So... Uh, it's the Song of Songs, chapter 7, is where I'll read from. 
had a hard time settling on where I would start and in this reading because there's so much uh, that is really meaningful here. And I am, I, you know, I get really excited to share most Sundays, but I'm like, I'm super excited today to share this information with you, uh, the things that I've learned and experienced over this last couple of weeks with this uh, book, this little bit of text, but this entire book. So, Song of Songs, chapter 7. How graceful are your feet in sandals, O queenly maiden. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with the lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools of Heshbon by the gates of Bath Rabin. Your nose is like a tower of Lebanon overlooking Damascus. I'm assuming that is a compliment, by the way. Your head crowns you like caramel. Your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in the tresses. How fair and pleasant you are, O loved one, delectable maiden. You are stately as a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I say I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its branches. O may your breasts be like clusters of the vine, and the scent of your breath like apples. And your kisses like the best wine that goes down smoothly, gliding over lips and teeth. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God few of you said. All right, friends, this morning the teaching is on the Song of Songs. And I've taught on this a few times, and I, I find it really fascinating, but I am aware that we are taught as Christians that any occasion in which we blush is an occasion with which we have sinned, and we should repent and run the other way. And for the next few minutes... There will be, I don't know, some amount of blushing and hopefully not a lot of sinning. And we should not run anywhere, but should settle in as best as we can. I'll also say, um, I was just taking notes on y'all's stories a minute ago. And I'm acutely aware that our bodies, and the Song of Songs is deeply concerned with our bodies. It is the space of often our first and most deep and intimate trauma. And often that kind of traumatic experience we carry with us, and you all were so generous to share those, can cause us to to sort of separate out from our bodies or to treat our bodies with some kind of contempt, to feed them things that do not bring them to health but bring them toward death. Today I want to share with you how our bodies can be the site of our healing. How rather than divorcing our spirit from flesh, that God intends for us to put these things back together. But I also am aware that if our bodies hold trauma, then to talk about our bodies involved with other bodies and our bodies present and vulnerable to God, it will make us feel exposed. And that is okay. Uh, So take these words as you can absorb them. And if at some point you need to reflect and talk afterwards, then uh, we have ministers, myself and others included, who would love to sit with you. Okay. When I was in grad school studying theology... I fell in love with the Hebrew language, Hebrew scriptures. And one of the assignments, uh, we had to take a, like intro to Hebrew, intro to Greek. And you could stop there. You could even take those past fail if you wanted to. 
But I, I loved Hebrew. It, it just, it like drew me in, it allured me. And so in advanced Hebrew poetry I took, just for fun, um, we ended up getting to translate a little bit of the Song of Songs. So I was assigned this passage, and I've got in front of me my Hebrew text, uh, Biblica, Hebraica, Studegartensia, and then I've got my dictionary and lexicon open here, and I've got a bunch of notebook paper, and I'm sort of moving back and forth, translating this passage here. And as I'm translating it, I start to feel incredibly uncomfortable because the text is, well, it is both subtle and it is explicit. And English does a really good job of taking anything that has like a hint of explicitness and then covering it up. It's like those museums where all of the statues were intended to be naked, but somebody's like, you know what we should do is we should make a bunch of like stone fig leaves and then we should glue those onto these statues because that is definitely what the author and the artist intended for this piece of work. And so anytime I picked up an English translation of the text, I found all of this obscurity. And I thought, what is the Hebrew doing here? What, what kind of language is it giving us? Is it this subtle or is it a little bit something else? In this passage it started to read as something else. And if you would have been sitting next to me, A, you would have likely felt how much I was sweating as I was translating. And I, you know, if you'd have looked over at my paper, I would have shut it really quick, like you would just looked at my computer screen with something inappropriate on it. That was kind of the feeling I was having. This is chapter 5, verse 4 in most of your texts. It says, My beloved thrust his hand into the opening and my innermost being yearned for him. What? Now, in the context of this translation, I am fully aware that this book exists within these books, like right in the center of these books. And multiple times when they were compiling the Bible, they had choices. They could have said, you know what? What if we just put this as like a footnote, read it later, but right in the center of the Bible? What is this thing doing in here? That was always the feeling I had. I always feel like the Song of Songs is the book that distracts the youth whenever they don't want to listen to the sermon and they grab their Bibles and like, ooh, let's go read a little bit of the Bible. I can't get in trouble for that. <laughs> I only say that because that's like, that's what I did when I was a kid. And that's how it prepared me to be a preacher today. <laughs> the text is both voluptuous and reticent. It says a whole lot and it says it in a way that is veiled. It's like flirty. Right? Doesn't give away the game, but it invites you in with its language. It draws you. So let's talk for just a second about what is included in the song. And at this point, if you wanted to just do a quick walkthrough, scan through, and find all of the phrases and words and things that make you uncomfortable in church, you could. The very first verse, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. The voice of my beloved, look, he comes leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Look, there he stands behind our wall, gazing in at the windows, looking through the lattice, saying to me, arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. For now the winter is past and the rain is over and gone. The passage that I read out of chapter 7, you may have uh, noticed in the language that it's like one of the lovers 
is seeing the beloved in front of them, is working their eyes up slowly. Your feet and your ankles and your, your legs and your the stature, the way you stand on the, and your hair, like he's moving methodically, closely and carefully. Which begs the question, what is the other person who's receiving these words doing, standing there, being seen? This is the point at which I was going to ask Warren to come up and we could have a little example. <laughs> just joking. I just, I want to describe you, Warren, to everybody. It would be exposing. You would be too vulnerable. None of you would want me to do that. And I wouldn't want you to do because it's hard. We like have all of these layers and all of these shields and armors. But in this text, it is just these two lovers these partners, and their, like, reckless abandon of wantonness. One poet says that this entire book is like a book of cleanly wantonness, which is a really lovely phrase. Another poet says that the words of the song, they, uh, they trample prudence underfoot. That sounds about right for me when I read the text. What is included in this story is flirting and Frenching. Do y'all, is Frenching still a word that people use? I ask my son, who's in middle school now, like, you know, what are the kids saying these days? Sweating or libido or body or blood. This is all there, these carnal gifts. Carnal being the word for flesh. By the way, carnal being the word inside of incarnation, which is the language we use for how Jesus shows up in the world. In fleshed. But what is absent from the text? Anybody want to wager a guess as what is not in the book? Yes. Specifically, whose name? God's name. God is not present in this book. Which, you know, if you're going to argue for a love poem to be included in the canon of Scripture, a mention of God would probably help it across the finish line. But God is absent in this book. Which begs the question, what is it doing here? So let me offer a little bit of church history for you about how it ended up here and maybe why. Last week we talked about Leviticus, if you were here with us, and I said that in Leviticus, the third book of the Old Testament, third book in the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, that this is often the first book, the first text that young children are encouraged to read because it's got all like rules and regulations. This is what you want to tell kids, the 101 of faith and of life. And it is deeply concerned with bodies too, like what bodies should do, what bodies shouldn't do, where they should go, when they should go there, how far they should go out the tent, right? All of those kind of things. This is Leviticus. This is like preschool level theology. I don't mean preschool in a bad way. I mean preschool in a first way. This is foundational stuff. But the rabbis, the teachers of Judaism, they say that the last book that folks should handle, that kids should read, Moses, this is for you, don't, you don't need to worry about this book right now, is the Song of Songs. This is like the PhD level of faith, of engaging with the text. So not only is it included, but then tradition says that it might in fact be like the crowning achievement of scripture. There was one Preacher around the 12th century, Bernard of Clairvaux, he, for the first two chapters of this book, chapters one and two of the Song of Songs, he wrote 86 sermons. Can y'all imagine if I preached 86 sermons to y'all on two chapters of the Song of Songs? That's like a year and a half's worth of sermons. 
Actually, that's a great, that would be a great way to grow the church. <laughs> 86. Rabbi Akiva, Jewish teacher, he has this line. He says that all of scripture is holy. Of course, all of scripture is holy. But the Song of Songs is the holy of holies. It is the center. It is the space where God's presence is most acutely sensed. And yet, the one name, right, the thing that is absent in the book explicitly is the name of God. How did this happen? Well, it doesn't take, like, a genius to read the text and see what is there. And a lot is there. A lot of joy, a lot of rapture, a lot of body. Very, very little, in fact, no shame. So over time, commentators and interpreters, they have this very ingenious way of reading texts that are confusing or that are of this kind of nature, and it's called allegory. It's like an extended metaphor or a comparison. This is like that. And so scholars and theologians and preachers over time, Akiva, Origen in our tradition, and Augustine and others, they would say, okay, yes, it's about like these two, this man and this woman, and then their love for each other, and their bodily joy in each other's presence. Like, that seems to be what the text is saying, but don't read it just like that. In fact, Akiva said, not only is the text the Holy of Holies, he says, but however, if you take this song and you sing it like in pubs, drunkenly trying to attract a mate, then there is no place for you in the world to come. What a dangerous text. They should have just left it out if those are what's at stake here. But they don't. They leave it in. And they say the two and the love that they share for one another, it actually represents the love that God has for Israel, for God's people. Which like, okay, that's, that's one way to handle the text, but that doesn't actually make it any easier because if I were to read you the passage from chapter 7 that I read you, your kisses like the best wine that goes down smoothly gliding over lips and teeth, and like I'm supposed to understand that as God's relationship with me and vice versa, like that's, that's, that's strange. That's exposing. Early church. Christians, followers of Jesus, they take this comparison. They say, oh, yes, the two lovers and the way that they feel toward another is like how Christ feels towards the church. And then over time in the Reformation, Martin Luther and Calvin and others say, oh, actually, the Song of Songs also is like the way that Christ feels towards each of us in our interior lives and our souls. They don't shy away from the explicit language. In fact, they dive deeper into it. And they say present here in this love between these two is something about the way that God is predisposed toward us. Now, this is the third Sunday in a set of teachings about generosity, which some of you are thinking, I, I think you missed a Sunday uh, because this text doesn't seem to apply to what you're talking about. Um, but the kind of love shared in this relationship Intimacy and affection that overflows. This is like the heart of generosity. And the gift economy that we've been talking about, 
We've said that, that giving away gifts, that giving of yourself, it does not deplete you, but in fact, it fills you back up. The language that Jesus uses for this is if you want to save your life, you have to lose your life. And if you want to be rich, then you need to become poor. So this is a kind of weird paradoxical logic at play. And in fact, the place I believe that we can see this most acutely, and I think this is also why our bodies can be sources of such intimate pain, because we are in this space so vulnerable, is that our own like hungers and cravings and desires for affection and for belonging, for being able to show up in our full, naked, unashamed self, Like, we crave that, but we are terrified of that. But to give of ourselves in that kind of way, to pour out our hungers toward another and have that other turn and pour back toward us, we find that something that, like, the language we might would use as libido, like a sexual urge, it is not, in fact, depleted in its giving away. In fact, when it is given away generously without force or extortion, to someone we love and trust and care about, whether it's a partner or it's a friend, there are all kinds of ways that we can move our vulnerable selves towards one another. We find that we are not in reduced, but we are lifted up, that we are filled back up. This is the gift logic at play that our bodies know, that our brains sometimes have a hard time catching up with. Because in fact, like we often think of our Affections, like we think about our money, like if I, you know, hand you a hundred, it just means that I have a hundred less dollars. If I hand you forgiveness, and it means I have less forgiveness to give to somebody else. We always think about things in zero sum, in scarcity. But God's world, driven forward by generosity, the language we use for that is grace, in fact is a world of abundance, not a world of scarcity. When our bodies receive trauma, especially early trauma, and we heard those stories today, it can't have this effect of closing us in on ourselves and assuming that everything good is scarce and unavailable to us. It takes a kind of awakening and a community of care to talk us back, to love us back, to hold us back into wholeness and say that there is more than enough goodness and grace. I wrote down a phrase that one of our friends here said that she felt so undeserving. I put a little question mark after it and I thought there's something about the life of faith that we come feeling so undeserving of what God offers us. But the surprise, the shock is that when we are seen, we are loved and accepted. The woman says like, I am beautiful and I am here. No sense of shame or lack. And somehow this presentation of the self is supposed to say something about the way that we present ourselves to God. I am here, lacking nothing, bringing my full self into this relationship. The language I think about for this is this is like the libido of grace. It is superfluous. It is abundant, it is overflowing. And God's giving it away, we find that we have more than enough to give away ourselves. This is the logic of the empty hands or the empty bowl. Creating a need and allowing another to fill it. This is not often the way that we think about life with God, but it is the central 
in the highest way that it gets talked about in the scriptures. There's this word desire that shows up in the text. It was at the very end of our reading in chapter 7, which is why I chose to share it with you. It says, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. This word desire, it only shows up in this form three times in the text, which is pretty rare. Usually means that wherever it shows up, it has a high level of like meaning we should pay attention to it. The other two times where this word shows up are in the curse from Genesis. When it says that the woman's desire will be for her husband and he will rule over her. Right? It is desire unanswered and unmet. It is desire in the context of power and oppression. It is the brokenness of our humanity on full display. The next time it shows up is when sin is crouching outside of the door of the two brothers. And the brother with anger and vengeance in his heart. And God says, like, look, sin is outside the door and its desire is for you. But you have to tame it. One other time this word shows up in a slightly different form and it talks about what I think is the depth of this word, which is abundance. This kind of desire is an overflowing kind of desire. And in the song, what is being shown is the curse undone. In Genesis, it is that the woman's desire is for this person and that this one will rule over her. And in the Song of Songs, it's that I am my beloved and his desire is for me. Everything is put back together. The song takes place in Eden. Eden being the word for pleasure. There is no struggle. There is no strife. Everything that has been broken apart, we find put back together here. We've talked about how in our alienation and separation from God, we lose contact with God and one another, with creation and with ourselves. If you read the song understanding that those are the wages of sin, you will see that sin has no effects in this garden. Where love and vulnerability are the only things present. There is no room for shame and there is no room for distance. There is just rapturous delight. And when we see this, we see the heart of God. But we carry around, if you're anything like me, boatloads of shame. All kinds of reasons to stay clothed. If you have a spouse, a partner, just think about how hard even for that one person it is to be fully naked and seen. I mean this both physically and otherwise. To feel your pain and your vulnerability. To cry openly at what is wrong with your life or with the world and trust that they will receive it and not judge you for it. It is so hard. If you are somebody who works with couples or with relationships in therapy, you know that like this is a layer upon layer upon layer. Or healing is inaccessible. And desire is ill-formed. Desire to numb. Desire to distance. And intimacy is this, this war on shame. So I was reading this week, and I came across this story of... Uh, it comes out of this memoir called Experience by this writer named Martin Amos. And he talks about how 
he didn't take care of his teeth very well. He just didn't care about them, didn't pay attention to them. And over time, they were in such bad shape and hurt so bad that he had to slowly have all of them extracted, like no teeth. And they had to fit his mouth with false teeth. And when they did this, they had to give him this kind of headgear that he wore. And this headgear that he wore, if you were a child who had to wear this, you may have a sense of what this must have felt like for him as a grown man. Um, it made his mouth like saliva and drool all the time. And he just felt gross. He said he felt like unlovable. He just wanted to pull away. And in his memoir, he tells this story about one of those first nights. He's laying in bed, just like washed over by shame. He says his wife comes in. He says that she comes out to the room and does this sort of like kind of silly belly dance for her partner. And she's wearing a robe and his false teeth. And then the author says she takes them both off. He says, that night you came in belly dancing in the bedroom wearing your silk bathrobe and my teeth both removed this was the war against shame. He says, the next morning I woke early and lay there, quietly laughing and weeping into the pillow. I felt fragile and guileless and exquisitely consoled. (sighs) Fragile and guileless and exquisitely consoled. The writer that was sharing this story says it's a pretty good description of how we are rendered by good sex with a loving partner. Fragile because it's always a risk to expose ourselves unguarded to another. Guileless because in our deepest physical encounters, the many ways we defend ourselves, our masks, our self-deceptions, they fall away. And exquisitely consoled. To have desire met and satisfied by the desire of another is exquisitely consoling. This is the power of deep intimacy and vulnerability. And this is the posture of God toward all that God loves. I know it's hard for us to imagine the vulnerability of God, because we have all these big words for God, the omniscient, the omnipotent, the all-powerful, the all-knowing, the all-all-all stuff, the, like Greek words for the everything of God. And we miss very like tactile, sensory language that God is always sort of enwrapped in, these extended allegories. But for God to show up in our world in fleshed is to become deeply vulnerable to the things that make us shake and quiver and hide. And to stay open to that world, to the point of death, is a move towards staying in this open... Even the posture of the cross is itself a vulnerable and welcoming posture. What does Jesus say toward the end of his life, moving towards death, if not, this is my body, which is given for you. Jesus gets it. Jesus knows the song. God gets it. And when we find ourselves lost in love and vulnerability, we have a chance to get it. 
One more story. Um, Barbara Brown Taylor, in her book, An Altar in the World, has a chapter uh, on the practice of wearing skin. If you have not read Barbara Brown Taylor's An Altar in the World, please, please, at some point, do yourself a favor and grab this book. You will love it, and it will challenge you. But she has a section in there uh, called The Practice of, of Wearing Skin and talks about how we find ourselves so often divorced from our bodies, our bodies being the first site of trauma and the place of our healing, our bodies holding sacred knowledge of God. She says that she would teach this class and she would invite like, I don't know, like 30 pastors and preachers and teachers into this classroom. And there was one class that was called Embodied Holiness. All right, embodied holiness. And they were given assignments. And so, uh, you know, we would be grouped together, maybe four or six of us, all in little groups. And we were, they were each given a beatitude. So blessed are those who, blessed are, blessed are. Um, and they were told, you're not gonna, you're not gonna teach this. You're gonna show this. You're going to show us what this beatitude means without words, but just with your bodies. And so they all broke up into groups like, that sounds, that also sounds like a terrifying experience. And so, like, there was one group uh, where they did this little, like, uh, they were all sort of baby chicks, and they were kind of pecking around. And then at some point, they, they reached this moment where they all take off together in these opposite directions. Uh, and so they went, beatitude after beatitude, and they got to, a blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And I'll, I'll explain to you what they did for this. And, and as I'm explaining it, part of the reason I want to share this is because often we can think like, okay, fine. Somehow God is present to us in the way that like two lovers are present to one another. But that is not a, a part of like human physical life that I have access to right now. Maybe you're single. Maybe you have come from a broken home. Um, maybe your wounds are such that being that kind of vulnerable and open with somebody else intimately is, is, is some ways away for you. Uh, first of all, there's a long tradition of particularly women in the faith who've seen and understood their physical hungers and urges to be fully directed toward God and for that to be plenty enough for their own satisfaction and satiation. Uh, St. Teresa of Avila, uh, Julian of Norwich, Catherine of Siena, uh, even if you read some of the ways that Mother Teresa would talk about her life, you can feel this kind of affection and craving for God. It sounds like the lovers in the song. But anyway, there's this group, and they're doing blessed are the, those who mourn for shall be comforted. And um, so they, they have one of the women, uh, it's all women in this group, because I've found uh, in the women in my life who've been uh, honest and open and, and taught me that there is some knowledge that women can carry in their bodies and if they're willing to teach the world it can offer the world a lot of healing so these women they gather together one of them is going to be the person who is sort of in the state of deadness lifelessness and, and they're laying there and then there's another a woman who receives the person who's laying down and uh, like cradles them in in her lap like holding her head and then uh, two other women come beside the woman who's dead and they surround her and they sort of form an arch over her. And then the, the last two women in the group stand just a little bit outside and stand over those two women and form another arch. And they said so their bodies look like this cathedral holding this uh, one who is dead. And they were completely still and silent for what felt like a long time. And the rest of the folks who were there in the workshop were quiet too. 
to not disturb the sacredness of what might happen. Nobody moving. From the middle of this cluster of women all touching one another, bodies intertwined, pain and stories spoken only with flesh. Just like this one small cry, it's kind of caught in the throat. And the folks who were listening weren't quite sure if it was intentional because it felt so pure. And also, who cries like that in front of other people? Trying to figure out if it was performance or if it was honesty. And then all of a sudden, this group of women start to weep a little bit together and the one who is dead begins to heave and come back to life and the whole cluster of them begin to weep and cry loudly and rapturously. And there is intimacy present and their bodies intertwined and there is something sacred that is growing up around them. And blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted to watch dry bones come back to life. They stand up wipe their faces and then they go and sit back down so much of the time when we show up in church or in prayer or in study we engage our minds like it is the only avenue to God and reason our way and check off our lists of beliefs and we we think that thinking is going to bring us into that exquisite consolation that we crave. But if worship is anything, and this is why I'm so adamant that you are here when you can be here in person, and the people who can't be here for physical reasons or otherwise, you can hear the craving for this, is because you are bodily communing with God and one another in this space. It matters who you sit next to. It matters the way you posture your body. Faith is enacted. It is not simply assented to in the mind. Jesus says, do this and remember me. Not think this and remember me. It is our bodies that do such violence to one another. And it is possible that it is our bodies that might connect us back to one another. In Hosea, God talks about what it's like to love and not have that love returned by God's people. But there's a passage that says that God is going to allure Israel, lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her, give her back her vineyards and make the valleys a door of hope. And then she will respond as in the days of her youth when she came up from Egypt In that day, you will call me husband and not master, ish and not baal. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land. All the violence that has been done to our bodies, has been done to our communities, will be gone. And they can lie down in safety. God says to them and God says to us, I will betroth you forever. In righteousness and justice, I will betroth you in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness. 
and you will acknowledge the Lord. In that day, I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the skies and they will respond to the earth and the earth will respond to the grain and the new wine and the olive oil and they will respond to Jezreel. And I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called, not my love. And I will call to those people who were once not my people and say to them, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. And it is the call and response. It is the craving and the hunger that we call grace. And it is on offer. And so I'll leave you with this today. Would you risk waking up your body to God? Not desiring to grab new facts about God right now. But to embrace that word knowledge, that in the Hebrew is the word yada, which is deeply sexual and physical in meaning. An openness and a vulnerability. Will you risk in this space with your singing, with your body, with your love and affection, a willingness to show up without shame? To imagine that God craves you? And that it is okay, in fact, necessary for you to crave God. How long has it been since you risked it to crave God? The reason I know and I keep hearing from you all these like sighs of affirmation is because our friends here have nothing left but to crave God because you've run out of other things you can try. You tried all the other stuff. We're all over here still pretending we can try other things. But when we run out of things to try, we are going to have to just lean in. Your very being here is already an investment in the promise that God might be present to you. Rapturous love. This is the heart of creation. Not a transactional God waiting to add up your score, but a lover waiting for you to come home. And this is good news. So would you pray with me? Reckless, overwhelming love at the center of our being. We pray for a tenderness to overtake us. For a way to be made in our own flesh where there was no way. For a trust in the way that you have made through the body and blood of Christ. For all the cleanly wantonness that his life has displayed. And all the satisfaction that a life lived in tune with you can give. Such that death has no hold or claim over it. And for all of the little and big ways that we are dying each day, God, we pray that you would find us and bring us back to life. And that we would allow ourselves to be loved and seen. Looked from toe to head arm to arm, seen inside and out, and to know that we are seen in love and not judgment and found deserving and worthy. This is the best of news, even if we have a hard time believing it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Pastor.